Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. And I'm excited to be coming to you uh, with a few different guests this week. We've got four guests on today to talk about a really cool restoration project that's taking uh, place out on the mouth of the Columbia River. It's a project that is uh, has earned this year's ASBPA Robert L. Weigel Project of the Year. It's a project that has stood the test of time, and we'll get to hear all about it. And we're hearing from folks both with the federal government as well as from the state of Washington and the state of Oregon. So uh, looking forward to hearing about that and, and talking to some of our guests. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Thank you so much to our sponsors. As always, we couldn't bring you these informative conversations without them. So uh, please do check them out online or, or visit them uh, if you have any needs. Okay, let's kick this off. We have Jared Norton from the Army Corps of Engineers Portland District. We have Bridget Lorman from the US EPA, Patty Snow from the state of Oregon, and Brian Lynn from the state of Washington. Uh, we will get a chance to introduce all of you, but since the, the real topic du jour is the this coastal project, is the Mouth of the Columbia River Coastal Project, I'll actually ask Jared to uh, introduce that project first. So Jared, why don't you quickly quickly introduce yourself and then paint us a picture of what this coastal project is. Great. Thank you, Derek. The, the Columbia River, uh, the area that we're going to be talking about today, is really just a, a six-mile span from river mile minus three to plus three that's bridges the gap between the, the coasts of Oregon and Washington uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So from the Corps of Engineers standpoint, we've been charged with maintaining that navigation channel and that six mile stretch given a, a fairly fairly tight work window in terms of, of high wave conditions that come during the fall through the spring. So from a Corps of Engineers standpoint, we've got three and a half to four and a half million cubic yards of dredge material in a short window um, to try to keep commerce flowing through that federal navigation channel. And the big task was 
what can we do to beneficially use that material rather than just take it offshore? So previous um, dredging efforts up until about 1997 took material offshore. And after 1997, um, a, a large number of folks started talking about what's a better way to use that sediment. So we started putting together, um, you know, the, the two states of Oregon and Washington, which Patty and Brian now represent and a, a larger group to start looking at nearshore and onshore placement of this dredge material. And it's kind of, it's kind of steamrolled starting in about 2003 and continuing momentum now to the development of a, a suite of nearshore disposal sites for, for hopper dredges that clear the channel, as well as some beach nourishment projects that have taken place um, specifically on the, the Washington coast. So um, right now uh, we've got four, I'll call it, four nearshore disposal sites that that the dredges use to, to supplement the sediment budgets of, of Oregon, Washington. So the erosion rates currently are, are not something that we can keep up with, but uh, by placing a few hundred thousand yards of dredge material, we're able to slow some of the erosion that we've seen on the Oregon and Washington coast. So the sites that we'll be referencing today, and if we get into acronyms, it might help a little bit, but We've got a shallow water site, which is a primary disposal site for a lot of the, the contract hopper dredge material. Uh, we've got a South Jetty site that's on south of the navigation channel along the Oregon coast, uh, an area called the North Head site, which is our newer nearshore disposal site that's adjacent to the Washington coast. We've also had nearshore or onshore placement, sorry, at Benson Beach and the Southwest Washington uh, Toral Drift which were partners with Brian's group, the Washington Department of Ecology. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that other than just saying that this is a, a large federal navigation channel that supports a, a lot of commerce from the Columbia River all the way up into the Snake River. Uh, it varies year to year, but we're talking about close to $25 billion in annual commerce. Uh, 40,000 local jobs dependent on that navigation channel. Uh, roughly... 930 million in commercial investments that are tied back to maintaining that deep draft channel for the commerce to flow through. And, you know, once we, once we get that channel clear, the focus is really what can we do with that sediment that will benefit both the, the communities, recreational um, interests, as well as the commercial uh, fishing fleets. So uh, I'll leave it. Fantastic. Thank you, Jared. So you've got this major river, the Columbia river, one of the, uh, you know, iconic rivers in the United States, um, both in terms of its ecological value, but as you were talking about the tremendous economic value uh, and the tremendous economic value derived from commerce that flows through the Columbia River and maintaining that channel is going to be essential, particularly in that high, uh, high energy times where you, you see big waves. Um, and so for over 20 years now, you've been planning on figuring out how to use the sediment in a way that um, they can help the surrounding uh, communities, help the surrounding ecology. You've got a bunch of different placement sites. So this is a, a pretty major uh, project, or, or I sort of talked about it as a, a multifaceted project or, or a series of projects that are all tied together. Um, so I'm really excited that ASBPA is presenting the award this year to this project because we often we often do uh, you know a major beach nourishment project, but this is a lot more complicated than just you know placing sand on a beach every seven years. Not that that's a simple task itself, and certainly those are, are tremendous value in, in doing that, but this has multiple sites all coming together 
um, around a, a better use of sediment. So I'm um, excited to, talk, to hear from all of you. We just heard from Jared. Why don't you give us a, a quick background on, on what your role is with the Army Corps, where you're based, um, and what your, what your role is uh, at the Corps? Uh, absolutely. So I'm, I'm currently the, the Northwestern Division uh, Navigation Program Manager, and that's a, a fairly new role for me. But most of my work going back to around, I guess, 2008, um, was working on the construction side for these actual placement sites, working with the contract hopper dredging fleet that was out there on an annual basis. And then around 2012, I moved into the project manager role for the mouth of the Columbia River. So I, I really took this position on and working with this group of stakeholders when the implementation of a lot of this beneficial use was taking place. But I need to recognize Doris McKillop, who is I guess two project managers removed who really started off this project and then Mike Ott for um, continuing Doris's work and taking it through to where I took over and currently Kate Growth is the, the project manager for the mouth of the Columbia River. But there's been a lot of a lot of hands involved in this as we'll probably discuss later on in this podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jared. And in addition to the core, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of other federal involvement. But uh, the person we have on today is is Bridget uh, Lorman with the US EPA. Bridget, you want to introduce yourself? Tell us what you do and, and sort of how you got involved in this project. Uh, yes, absolutely. Happy to be here today, Derek. Um, I'm a marine ecologist with the EPA, as you mentioned. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. Um, a portion of my work is focused on dredge material management, um, both under the Clean Water Act, as well as the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act, or also known as the Ocean Dumping Act. Um, for managing dredge material, I am involved in evaluating the suitability of that material for in-water disposal, mainly from a toxicity perspective. But also at EPA, I look at um, my responsibilities include looking at the impact of the disposal or placement of that material, um, hopefully, and in this context, in a beneficial use manner on different parts of our coastal ecosystems, from the economics to impacts to um, key natural resources. So um, again, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, can that material go in water? And if it can, is it going to be dumped at an ocean disposal site or placed in the river or in this context placed near shore for beneficial use? I had started with the EPA in 2011. And in that, when I started in this position, um, EPA was engaged in the Lower Columbia Solutions Group. Here, this multi-agency stakeholder group, and they had just finished the regional sediment management plan had just been signed. So I came into this role um, here with this group in terms of implementing that regional sediment management plan. And, and as, it's, as it's been discussed, it really provides this, this flexibility for the Army Corps of Engineers for their disposal and placement needs of dredge material to have flexibility of placing it in different locations near shore for the benefit of our coastal ecosystems, both for the state of Washington and the state of Oregon. Well, thank you, and let's uh, let's turn to the state of Washington and the state of Oregon. We'll start with uh, we'll start with the South. So, uh, Patty, why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell us what your role is with the state, and then also how you came to be involved in this project. I also started in this position in 2011, just after the uh, regional sediment management plan was signed. Um, but so I am head of the coastal program, so we're certainly very um, similar to Washington. We're very 
uh, engaged and interested in this process. And for the last several years, Brian and I have been the co-leads of it. Um, before that, it was a dispute resolution group that was helping to coordinate it. Um, I also, in my former position, I was at Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife for quite a number of years and had been involved with uh, some of the disputes that caused this group to come together. So uh, it's been really nice to see um, the resolution of and, and addressing those conflicts. When I was originally um, at Fish and Wildlife, we were uh, there was a lot of controversy about where to put this material, especially when the channel was being deepened. So it's been really uh, rewarding to see that um, uh, evolve over time. Thanks so much, Patty. I, I actually want to come back to that idea of, of moving this from dispute resolution to proactive collaboration. So rather than trying to avoid conflict, we're at, you're, you guys are actively seeking to create solutions. I think it's a it's a, a small but very important shift in perception of how the project is evolving. Um, but before we get into that and, and a bunch more, uh, Brian, really glad to have you on the line. Tell us about uh, you, yourself, your work, and how you got involved in this project. Thanks, Derek. Uh, yeah, it's Brian Lynn, and I'm our Coastal and Shoreline Section Manager at the Washington State Department of Ecology, and in this position serve as our State Coastal Program Manager as well. So the section I manage provides policy and technical support on shoreline management, floodplain management, and ocean and coastal management, including this regional sediment management work at the mouth of the Columbia River. Uh, so maybe just a little background on it and, and it will lead to how I got involved, but the, the Lower Columbia Solutions Group was created in 2002 as a joint uh, governor's initiative between uh, Governor Gary Locke in Washington and Governor Kitzhaber in Oregon. And it was really uh, done, set up to start trying to resolve these dispute issues around channel deepening at the, at the mouth of the Columbia River. And that's how this whole thing got started. I worked through some really contentiousness um, around that, that topic. And, um, and as things sort of settled down there, the group started to shift its thinking towards regional sediment management. In 2005, both governors were um, you know, moved on and there were two new governors in place, but the work continued. And it really had been governor's policy staff that had been engaged from the, the states early on. And that started to shift more towards um, bringing in the agency folks. And so I came on in 2006, initially just supporting our governor's policy person, but eventually just shifting into that role as the point person for the state of Washington and then coordinating with, with the governor's office as needed. Uh, and, and principle in, in all of this was that we have had the support of, of uh, initially the um, Oregon Solutions Group and and, uh, and the National Policy Consensus Center out of Portland State University to really help guide and, and lead this initiative through facilitation and support. And um, so I, I think we'll be touching on that more today as well. But that's that's how I got started with this, and it's been what 15 years now. So hard to hard to believe that sometimes. Thank you, Brian. Thank you all for joining me today. There's a lot of experience on this project and, and a lot of really good work that's gone into this. Patty, I'll turn my first question to you, um, which is what do you see as the greatest or some of the greatest benefits that this project has provided uh, both to Oregon and to the, the coastal system generally? 
Uh, for me, there's two main things. One, uh, before there, a lot of the material was being disposed of in an offshore site, which took it out of the littoral system. So we were seeing, especially just north and just south of the jetties, we were seeing erosion. And, and, and if the south jetty was ever breached, that would be really um, not a good thing for the Columbia River and the commerce that depends on it. So, um, so I think, to me, one of the, the big benefits has been uh, developing uh, new sites that are within the littoral system that can have beneficial use. Um, and there's been a lot of science to back that up in terms of the best way to dispose of the material that, that um, reduces or eliminates impacts on, on natural resources, which of course we were very interested in. Um, and then, uh, so I'd say those beneficial uh, those benef the beneficial use of the dredge material to me is is a is a huge asset, and then the other thing that I think has been really important is the communication uh, between the states, between the states and the federal agencies, and within with the user groups as well. Um, I'm sure you'll hear more about this, but we have very active um, a crabbing association in both uh, in both Oregon and Washington, and so um, they were they've been a really key actor in all of this and so i think we've seen uh, and there was a lot of distrust at first especially you know a number of years ago when the channel deepening was happening so i think that is the other real benefit to me is is getting uh, collaboration coordination communication between all these different groups yeah great uh brian anything to add on that uh, no, I think she, Patty hit on the key thing. First of all, the overarching goal of this really has been how do we increase the beneficial use of sand? And I, and, um, I, I think we've really demonstrated that we've been able to do that more. We're still sending some sand out to the deep water site, but that's reduced. And I think our goal in the long term is that we put it all to beneficial use. Uh, this is good, clean sand that gets dredged out of the mouth every, every year. So there's a lot of this really valuable resource there, and we want to make sure we're putting it to good use. I'd emphasize the learning piece of this. That's one of the cool things that's come from this is um, through this effort, of, we've been investing in uh, monitoring. We've been learning what happens um, through through video observation and you know, various tools. Uh, you know, what happens to the crab when the sand gets placed? and um, and how are the how are, where's the sand going after um, after we place it? And so there's that's been a, an ongoing part of this. It's a key part of our adaptive management work there. So uh, I've really I think valued that, and everyone has valued the, uh, the importance of continuing to learn as we go along. The one other thing I'd just add is that this this work, this collaborative work, um, and ongoing conversation about this topic has really supported our. Uh, agency permitting as well. We we have to issue water quality certifications. Our permitting staff are engaged in this, so they can advise. You know what's what we can do under the regulatory authorities, um, but can also learn about the project and and hear from stakeholders as well during during the course of those conversations. So I think it's really streamlined our processes around permitting. That's fantastic. So I heard three and maybe four key points with what you guys said, Patty and Brian. The first um, clearly articulated was uh, the beneficial use of dredge material, being able to actually use sand in a way that helps uh, helps the region, helps reduce erosion. Um, the second being uh, communication and collaboration with key stakeholders, folks that previously might have seen uh, sand or, or placement as a problem are actually now engaged, uh, and that creates trust. 
Um, the third being education, uh, continuing to learn and evolve and, and understand how this this process works and being able to be uh, improve it as it goes. And then connected to education, but also um, also in there was improved regulatory processes uh, because of the engagement of the permitting agencies. So I'd actually like to dig into each of those a little bit. Um, I'm not sure who's the best person to answer this. We might be going back to Jared on this one, but uh, talking a little bit more about those actual sand placement sites. Um, you mentioned you had four different sites, uh, some of which were onshore and some of which were in the nearshore. Perhaps you could pick, uh, Jared, maybe pick one uh, one of the nearshore sites and talk a little bit about what that placement actually looks like. Are you just disposing it into a into a, a, a open water? Are you doing thin layer placement in the nearshore? How does how does the nearshore um, placement work? Absolutely. Uh, just one more thing to add to what uh, Brian and Patty mentioned for. Some of the benefits is, and this will this will get expanded on in my next comments. But it, this this whole process has led to a ton of innovation with just the the monitoring of dredge material placement and and really innovation with the, the softer skills of of working with stakeholders and and trying to have a really good give and take, recognizing that everybody's working within their constraints of their agencies or organizations, along with you know our, our funding situations and. And all those different aspects that come into implementing the project. But I think I'll focus on the South Jetty site because that's where we have the most inner uh, information. And the way that we're, we're placing this material is trying to keep it within the depth of closure, which on the West Coast we're identifying as anything um, shallower than 60, 60 feet of water, even though we're still working on that and trying to quantify material that's placed in depths um, greater than that. Uh, we're using the, the government dredge SAONs uh, because she's a, she's a vessel that has bottom uh, disposing doors instead of a split hole hopper. So she's got a little bit more control when she's moving through the site disposing material. And we, we are doing thin layer placement. So previously to that, uh, in some of our sites, we were doing thin layer placement as, as kind of a guideline um, and not really targeting exactly, um, I guess, the extent of our, our thin layer placement. But when we started using her in the shallow water site, we're saying that she's got to transit a great, a great distance. So what we do is we create this site um, based on input from, from all the different interests of the stakeholder working group for the Lower Columbia Solutions Group. And we grid it out into, um, there's 84 different cells so when the dredge comes in with a, a full hopper load of material, she begins placement in one cell and then she transits through 10 different cells to ensure that the draft over distance and that material is being spread very evenly. So um, Brian touched on it too. Um, when she's placing material, we've had an agreement with um, National Marine Fisheries Service to develop these really innovative techniques where we're actually putting GoPro cameras on the seafloor just prior to the dredge coming over the top and she places material directly on them. So we're doing a, a number of things with that, which is monitoring crab response. So there's bait near the cameras. And then there's also, um, I guess just, uh, they were basically rulers that show the deposition amount. So a big concern was, was burial of benthic species and what their response would be. And with that thin layer placement, our, our target was to keep each placement event under five centimeters and through whatever it's been seven years, I think of, of placement and the small sample size that we have of the video monitor events, the, the material is almost discernible when it comes um, to the seafloor. So you'll see the plume hit 
And then once that material settles out, you see that kind of work into the bed forms and no, um, no real alarming um, deposition events. So we're trying to keep the, the deposition roughly um, between 400 and 500,000 or yeah, 500,000 cubic yards per season so that we don't overwhelm the, the benthos in that, um, that area for the placement site. But we want to get enough material there that it's substantially feeding the, the shorelines in that near shore environment. Um, and that what we've learned from that South Jetty site is what we're applying to the North Head site on the Washington side. So trying to expand on what we've learned there to kind of streamline the processes of, of bringing those sites online and, and feeding those shores. Thanks, Jared. I, I just think this is fascinating. Those of us on the East Coast often think of thin layer placement uh, as, as a marsh, uh, as a way to help elevate or, or help marshes accrete. And so we're, you, you can sort of visualize uh, sediment being sprayed across a marsh and increasing that marsh uh, elevation by a couple inches. But here we're actually talking about thin layer placement underwater. So you're, you're depositing, and you said five centimeters, just five centimeters deep, so just a couple inches uh, along a, a, a big track of underwater uh, terrain. And then that sediment is then through natural forces just being brought up onto shore and helping feed the, the, the coastal system. Is that how it works? You're just sort of letting the waves and the currents bring that up on shore? Yeah, that's right. So we've, we've done a number of different modeling efforts, um, both, you know, I guess modeling and in situ type experiments with sediment tracers prior to actually placing material with a hopper dredge, but we are just using what we've learned from, from those different efforts to allow natural processes to, to move that material around. Um, and one thing to just point out, it's not, it's not a very, um, small effort to, to keep that material that thin each loaded from that. The government roughly 5,500 cubic yards of material. Yeah, uh, quite a challenge, quite impressive that you're able to uh, keep such a, a, a precise level um, when you're really just disposing, you're, you're just disposing of material out of the, the bottom of a hopper dredge. That's great. Um, so uh, I want to give a chance for either Patty or Brian to add on if, if you have anything else you'd like to talk about in terms of the sediment placement, and then and then we'll turn back to turn back to our Bridget at EPA to think about some other challenges we're facing in terms of the sediment placement. But Brian or Patty, anything you'd like to add about uh, how that sediment is being placed? Well, I would say uh, Jared captured it well. There are certainly, uh, uh, I mean, really cool uh, outcome from from the studies. I think I mentioned that before, but that has been a one, a great example of some, some of the collaborative work done with some of our stakeholders to design the monitoring program to learn from those placements. But I think also we still have a lot to learn um, and continue to need to invest in really understanding where does this sand go? Where does it end up? Is it achieving the benefits that we want it to achieve? And especially as we've been looking at um, creating the site in the North Head, um, it's you know really critical to in, in make sure that we're, we're meeting our core objective, which is keeping the sand in the system as at the same time that we're trying to balance out all these other, um, you know, interests. Are we making, are we, you know, not uh, putting too much sand in one location and causing navigational safeties with mounding? And I think Jared's addressed that pretty well, that we were really attentive to that. But similarly with crab, to make sure that we're not uh, impacting species. But finding the right location to put the sand to make sure it ends up in the right place is 
I, it's still a work in progress. So um, I think we that's just part of our ongoing commitment to making sure that we're achieving the benefits that we want to achieve. And just would, would add on that um, I didn't mention it at first, but the but the science, the uh, monitoring, I think has been really important. Uh, and as Jared said, innovative. So I think that's been really important for our fish and wildlife agencies. Um, in, in terms of, of placement, um, I think the, the monitoring has been showing that the way it's been placed um, has had little impacts on the uh, on the, the benthos there and that the, the, um, the crab and the other species that were there returned quickly. Um, so I think that's important. And the other piece that was important was to the crabbers themselves, that they were very concerned about mounding. And so that's another reason why um, we've, the Corps has been needed to be very careful about where and how much they, they place because um, uh, our, our Columbia River Bar is very notorious and we don't want to do anything that's going to endanger the fishers that are out there north and south of the jetty. So I think that's another point I wanted to add. Yeah, really good point, Patty. Um, well, Bridget, let's turn to you. I know EPA isn't responsible for uh, for fisheries issues, which is under NIMPS and, and certainly uh, other wildlife issues uh, under Fish and Wildlife Service and the state fish and wildlife agencies. But I'm sure EPA must have looked at this project and been both a little bit excited, but also seen some potential red flags. Can you talk about how the role EPA has played and, and what you saw as the challenges um, to some of these projects and how they've been overcome? Yeah, happy to do that. I, I, you know, the challenges, I guess, of, of, I think about this project from the, the convening of a large stakeholder group and um, just there's some, there's some basic challenges of when you're trying to develop a regional sediment management plan that, that kind of are at that basic level, but you've got to, you've got to move past that. And I'd say, you know, when you think about um, just convening the number of people, the agency staff, the stakeholders, um, getting them together, keeping them interested in the project um, over these long periods of time. Those are those are challenges that just fundamentally need to be to be worked through. I think um, this group has done a really great job at the leadership of, of the core and the states of Washington and Oregon to continue to find ways to bring um, all of the agencies and all the stakeholders together to have regular communication via the telephone. We also, it's really important to meet just in person and have that face-to-face time so that building of trust and understanding of folks' issues can be done in a face-to-face manner. And so, you know, one of the challenges is just how do you keep that momentum going and how do you keep folks keep coming to the meetings and 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 coming to talk um, about the the project and particularly having, you know, champions and folks that work as hard as, as, um, the people that are really dedicated to this project have, that really helps keep that momentum going. So that's just one of the, the, the basic challenges. And times they wax and wane, I mean, in terms of involvement and engagement. But um, but over the course of a long period of time, it's, it's, it, it, it's hard. And it takes, one of the things it does take is really good facilitation. And so having a facilitator, and Brian had touched on this, to kind of lead the group and keep the group moving is something that, you know, any project needs, and this one certainly needed as well. 
the other, I was just going to mention one other item that um, when you bring all these folks together and, and EPA included, and there's a whole bunch of issues that, that people come to the table with, um, they're thinking about nearshore placement and, and what is either their agency mandate or their their livelihood that may be impacted by a change in the nearshore. You have to kind of, the facilitator in the group needs to really do a, a good job of sort of peeling back the onion on what the issues are and really getting to the heart and the core of what people are are feeling and thinking about this nearshore beneficial use placement in order to then be able to do a prioritization of issues that um, that need to be addressed. So, you know, how lots of you come in and you're talking about Dungeness crab or we're talking about shellfish beds or we're talking about impacts to, you know, navigation and, and um and wave climate and how do those all play out and how do we spend, you know, really critical um, time and energy of everyone involved to, to, to answer the questions that, that are being asked of, of this group. Yeah, that's a challenging situation. It seems like a lot of it comes back to building that trust to make this a successful process and to get the buy-in from all these diverse stakeholders that what's being done is the best solution for everyone, even if it may not be the single best solution for them. So I'll open this up to really anyone who wants to address it, but how how have you built trust? You've got federal agencies, you guys represent state agencies, but we've talked about uh, business interests, private interests, um, local uh, local governments I know have been involved. I'm sure there have been you know conservation groups. How in addition to the facilitation and the in-person meetings to build that face-to-face relationship, how has trust been built, and what do you think, um, what do you think has been responsible for that that trust that have allowed these projects to move forward? And I guess the the follow-up to that is: Are there aspects that you still think are 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 not there where there isn't full trust? Are there folks um, involved in this effort that may not be uh, may not be as bought in as you you would like them to be, or or maybe they you hope they will be in the future? Derek, I, uh, this is Brian, I, I'll, I'll start. Um, so I think uh, going back to the origins of, of this um, this whole effort uh, and that it started, um, you know, under this umbrella of, the, of, of solutions, you know, it's a solutions oriented group, I think is really critical because I think it has evolved over time, but it's carried that with it all along the way. And um, when we talk about facilitation, I, the other thing to note here is that we have had third-party neutral facilitation from the beginning, and um, and that was originally from you know staff with the National Policy Consensus Center, uh, and then with some consultants you know working through them or working for the core. But it's always been somebody who was just enough removed from the agencies, and um, you know I think that was very important at the beginning and. We actually went back to the group, I think around 2015, and just sort of checked in again. Do we still need to do this? And everybody still felt it was it was really important. And I think that's one of the key um, sort of mechanisms or key ways to make sure that we maintain the trust is just having just a little bit of detachment um, in the facilitation role. And then I think the other thing is that it it's um, you know, it is it is all about relationships and um, that trust. It just takes time, and we have to work together. And I think people have come to this, especially over time, um, uh, understanding that we have a common purpose, we have common interests, 
we just need to keep figuring out uh, what those are and the best way to address them. There's been an openness to to collaborate on things like monitoring, um, and I think just a general sense of let's let's listen to what each other's saying. Let's uh, see if we can figure out a course that works for everyone, and let's try some things and learn from them and adapt. And I think that general approach has inspired good uh, creative thinking. It's been it's I think led to just uh, this building of relationships and trust. So part of it is this is a long game. We've been this has been going on for 15 or 20 years, and I think that's sometimes what it takes is to, to build that and um, you know and sustain it over time. Thanks. Other thoughts on on how to build that trust? Derek, this is Bridget. I was just going to add um, one other thing there, and and um, Brian had hit it there on the end is talking about adaptive management, and and part of the trust building that I've seen is that there's been a willingness to to take baby steps in this process. I mean, it's been a process. This project is it's taken, you know, as we've described, many years to get in place and it continues to evolve. Um, and just the willingness of the participants to, you know, we, we, we deposit a bit of, we agree that, okay, we all feel comfortable with, with, let's say, this volume of material. It may not be as much as the Army Corps of Engineers may desire to be disposed or placed at the one particular site, but we're just going to stay with, let's say, a lower volume this year, do the monitoring, see the data, see the results, um, and then make our next decision as a group based on the science that came out of that, out of the research effort the year or two before, and then continue to to move and build on the program. I think I think the incremental process throughout all of this has allowed folks to really build the trust in, in the group the agencies and the process itself. Yeah, I really like both of those answers. The the independent facilitator so that there's no one, none of the interests are leading the conversation. There is this independent facilitator. And then this idea that, you know, everyone is relying on the same set of facts and science and that there's ongoing science and analysis to make sure that what's happening is is what what's being said is what is happening is actually happening. That's great. Um, I, I want to sort of turn into uh, how other coastal managers, other communities may be able to learn from this. One thing that this does, does sort of strike me is this process can't be free, right? Everyone has to commit the time to do it. You talked about having independent facilitators. Um, I know the core wants to dispose of their material as cheaply as possible. And sometimes, uh, beneficial use can cost a little more. It sounds like this thin layer placement is probably a more complicated process. So that might even ratchet up the cost. So how is all this getting paid for? Is this coming through Army Corps budget? Are you guys each putting in money? What's the what's the what's the budgeting for this like? Maybe we'll go back to Jared to to kick off from the core side and then we'll turn to our state friends to to say if they have any additions on that. Thanks, Derek. So the the funding, at least from the core side, has come through two different routes. It's come from general O&M uh, budgeting, and it's also come through regional sediment management. And that was the RSM piece was what kicked off a lot of the kind of innovation at the, the South Jetty site. Um, and that South Jetty site is really what the group aligned when we got all the pieces together and could see arming things that everybody was concerned about. We were still meeting the federal standard from the core side, which you, you touched on a little bit, trying to do things um, cheaply. But um, 
You know, I, I think the funding streams have really been collaborative as well. So the, the federal government's got a big chunk and um, through some of the general practices for sediment sampling that are required. And then also a lot of in-kind um, efforts from from groups like uh, Columbia River um, Crab Fishermen's Association, um, just just getting their heads together, you know, even off, outside of our meetings and thinking of, of ways that they can help out. So I think a lot of this stuff, you know, even even though we're not capturing it in our time, it consumes a lot of, of what we do. And I'm probably missing some folks, but a lot of this, even when they haven't had funds to contribute, you, you know, it's it can be five or $10,000 at a time, or it could be 250000 dollars at a time that, that the core commits, but it's all, it's all led to this. So sometimes, you know, the smallest little bit of effort or the smallest five minute conversation has led to some very big innovations and, and really helped, um, you know, keep this, keep this project on track. Great. Uh, Patty, I'll turn to you. Maybe have you had uh, thoughts on, on how this has been budgeted? How have you made the commitment from Oregon to make sure that this effort is supported and funded? So uh, thank you. We uh, certainly the core has been the the big player there, but the states have have also contributed uh, not every single year, but a, a number of different years. Uh, our coastal program and, and Washington's coastal program have contributed as well as uh, our Department of Fish and Wildlife. So um, I think that is a testimony to to the fact that the agencies in the states feel that it is an important process and want to want to keep that going. So. Um, uh, and I, you know, we've been really supportive of, of the core looking after um, regional, looking into options for regional sediment management funding. So we're hoping that that will continue into the future. But we we have made monetary contributions as well. So I guess from that, as I was uh, trying to foreshadow, let's th- move into sort of what are the lessons learned here? And, and I've certainly heard a bunch, but I'd love to get your your thoughts, if, if you're trying to sort of share the successes, share the challenges that you guys have faced with other coastal managers, anything that you would, anything that you'd like to let them know, things that they should be thinking about? Uh, uh, Brian, we'll, we'll start with you and then maybe pivot to Bridget and, and then Patty or Jared can jump in after that. Right. Thank you, Derek. So I, I think there's a couple things. Um, first, I mean, so I've talked with coastal managers across the nation uh, all the time. And so I, um, I don't always hear great positive uh, stories about their their workings with the Corps of Engineers. Um, and, you know, that there may be various, you know, reasons behind that. But I think what's critical here is that this is a I, I just an excellent example of, of a, a district office uh, at the Corps of Engineers being a, a highly positive and collaborative partner. And so I guess maybe, you know, what this demonstrates is that it it's possible. And, um, and you know, and I think that really has been a key, a key aspect of the success of this project, you know, without them being willing to engage, try to find resources for it and, you know, flex in terms of the way they may have typically done their work, um, you know, this wouldn't have happened. So I think that's one, one example uh, or one lesson learned. I think also this this is just a good example of a multi-interest collaborative process. Uh, we're in the midst of updating our RSM, our Regional Sediment Management Plan. It was originally completed in 2011. We're updating it now, and I think that will that can be a resource for coastal managers as soon as we get that up on our, our website. They can just learn more about the history of this and the approach we've taken there. One note I'll just make on that. 
uh, we're working with Jim Owens, who was a consultant who has been supporting our work for several years now. He's retired this past year, but Jim had offered to to finish uh, working on the update of that plan because he called it a labor of love. And um, uh, that might sound kind of crazy, but I think it's a good uh, it's a good example of the level of commitment that people have had to this project. So I think, again, that's the other lesson in this is if you build something that's great and collaborative, I think people are excited and um, you know, I'm proud to be a part of it. And so um, I think that's, a, a, I think a goal to aim for is build something that people will be willing to stay in for the long haul. Thanks, Brian. Bridget, anything to add to that? Um, I was going to share a couple things. I think, you know, we, we you mentioned about the funding and um, this and how that has this has worked amongst this group. And I think a lesson learned that I would say to others around the country that trying to pursue such an effort is um, there has been funding challenges. But I think particularly not lack of interest or um, from the stakeholders, but really how do you? There's barriers to if uh, to to combining those funds from the from even different federal agencies together, there's barriers to get move, money moved from state the states to the federal government. Um, there's you know you have to be innovative and creative to you know pool all these different various pots of of money that may be coming in even at different times. And we had a lot of discussions about that. And and so I would just say to others to to think about you know, what mechanisms you have in your area or your agencies or the folks you, you work with of how you're going to pool um, and, and think about how to, you know, combine the, the money from rather than just one entity funding it all, but to be able to have everybody participate. The, the second thing I would also mention um, is lesson learned or to share with others is again we've touched on this several times bring in the science and bring in the expertise from um from the the, the vast number of of people the states and the feds and other folks that we have that can provide um on the ground monitoring and data collection and because that that really has moved this group forward um seeing is believing sometimes is one of those things and when when the innovative um the innovative project that NOAA fisheries brought to this team of viewing the disposal of dredge material on the seafloor in this near shore south jetty site area i mean that that those videos are are absolutely new science. No one had seen it before and really moved the conversation forward much more quickly. Um, great answers all. Uh, Patty, Jared, anything to, to add to either of those? Those were so good. I want to keep it, keep it going. Bridget just mentioned it, but I was going to mention it to the science. I think that was really important so that um, everyone could see it and agree to it. Um, and again, the, the collaborative nature really, uh, you know, if the core had not been willing to not just say this is what we're doing, um, but to be willing to look at different options and to um, dredge or dispose in a different way, um, I think that was, it wouldn't have been possible without their willingness to do that. So I think that was that's probably a, a, requ a prerequisite um, to have a, a district uh, core that's um, that's uh, willing to work with the states and the and the, all the uh, stakeholders. So I think that was really important and the facilitators. I think we mentioned that too, especially at first, because there was a lot of distrust at first, 
And I think if it had been viewed as, as a core, top-down driven process, it never would have um, evolved the way that it did. Great, great answers all. This has just been such a uh, interesting project to hear. Um, I think it's it's noteworthy that we came on to talk about a project, and I think probably well over half the conversation has been about the process to develop that project rather than the project itself. And I think that is um, probably uh, uh, exemplary of what makes a good project is it does take a lot of process. There is a lot involved in it, but the end result is you have this this functioning uh, interdimensional project that brings a lot of people together and a lot of people like. So really glad we've had this conversation. I do want to sort of wrap up. Uh, we've had a, we could talk about this for, for days and weeks and months, as I know you guys do in your uh, lower Columbia solutions group. Um, but I want to see if anyone has any sort of final words, final thoughts, things that they feel like the world should know about this project that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet. So, um, in fact, why don't we just do a go round and, and each person can give sort of like their closing wrap up thoughts. And um, and maybe uh, if you don't have things that you want to share about what's already happened, um, you could also share a hopes for where, how this project evolves over the next two, five, 10 or more years. So, um, so again, anything that we haven't discussed and then your hopes for the project moving forward. Uh, why don't we go in reverse order from how we started? So we'll kick off with Brian. Great. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for the time today. It's been great to talk about this project. I would like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to Dale Beasley. He's with the Columbia River Crab Fishermen's Association and has been really uh, involved with this process from the beginning. He's a strong advocate for, for his industry and for coastal communities in general. And that's I think has been critical to the success of this project uh, over time. And um, I think just for the future, I just hope, um, you know, that, you know, we, we go through transitions with people and, um, and budgets and all that. And I, and I will just hope for continued work um, uh, and investment from, uh, from all the parties to keep this going. I think we're making great progress and uh, it's been a success so far. And I'd like to see that continue. Great. Thank you, Patty. Again, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, just want to say I'm really grateful that we're finding beneficial ways to use uh, this material, which really is a resource, which for much of it had been um, going quite a ways offshore where it wasn't going to help uh, in the littoral cells. So we're really pleased to see that and hope that we continue this in the future with how um, you know, not only how the Columbia is managed, but looking up and down um, our coasts for other places where we can uh, do something similar and, and um, have the most beneficial use of, uh, of this resource as we can, the sand resource. So looking forward to the future is, and as Brian said, we've seen changes in government, governors, we've seen changes in staff and that will continue. And so just hopeful that that will, um, we'll be able to continue this process into the future. Thanks, Patty. Bridget? Yeah, I was, you know, looking ahead um, into the future. I I think about the fact that our oceans uh, and our climate are changing, and and really what this project, where I'm so proud about this project, is that we've created this this network of nearshore sites as well as um, a network of sites. There's an offshore ocean disposal site as well. Um, and but that there's a network of, of options essentially for the Army Corps of Engineers to use based on um, 
wave conditions when they're doing their operations and when they're doing their dredging. And so each year that evaluation of, of which sites to use and, and where to go um, it is done in a very um, conscious manner. And I just, I just believe that um, we, in our oceans, we need more, we need that flexibility for, for the Army Corps of Engineers and their dredging operations, and it, and it goes beyond that. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this idea of, of creating networks of, in this case, placement sites for, for dredge material disposal but, um, will, will continue. And, and as Patty said, you know, potentially look at this at other places along our, our coastline so we can use that material as, as beneficially as possible. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Derek. I think um, one thing I'm excited about is that we've just got, you know, we can't really predict what's going to happen in the next few years, but we've got just these brilliant coastal engineers that work on these projects. So we talked about the process a lot, but that process really got into the weeds of a lot of specifics that, you know, Rod Moritz and um, George Kaminsky and Guy Gelfenbaum were really, they've been looking at for, for 20 years and we're able to take advantage of their, their knowledge to kind of implement these planning and process driven um, decisions to, to do this large scale type of implementation for regional sediment management. I think one thing that's really critical is this, this type of outreach that we're doing right now and talking about it and let people know that you, you can take a group of 30 to 40 different stakeholders that all have competing needs and they can all come together and you can get to a very, like Brian said, a labor of love that everybody looks forward to you know, our annual meetings, everybody wants to get together after the meetings and, you know, have a beer and talk about the future of this project. So it's kind of, you kind of geek out over this stuff after, uh, uh, once you get through the, the challenges, it really just becomes something you look forward to. And it's, it's amazing. So, you know, you know Bridget and I have, have gone and, and spoken at different thin layer placement type events and everybody's just blown away that, you know, we got to, Got to where we are when it started out so contentious, like we've we've touched on. So it's it's really exciting, and I just I can't wait to see what the future holds for this group and the, the projects moving forward. Well, thank you guys. This is an absolutely fabulous project. I, I've loved learning about it. I knew a little bit about it going in, but it's just been really fascinating to hear. Um, and congratulations on uh, on the award. Although, as all of our listeners have heard, it is obviously well deserved. A fascinating multi-dimensional process with a, uh, a multi-dimensional project with a uh, robust stakeholder process. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Capitol Beach on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As always, uh, please tune in to ASPN uh, and subscribe on any anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, we'll be back with you in, in future episodes, hopefully soon. Take care, all. <laughs>